Hello and welcome to The Lyle Shelton Show on ADH-TV. Lots to cover again this week with a big focus on cost of living and why Australians are hurting. I'll give you a hint, it's not because of the war in the Ukraine. As always, I'll talk with girls and women's rights advocate Kiralee Smith from Binary because every week something new that's completely crazy comes at us from the LGBTIQA plus political activists who are seeking to indoctrinate your kids. You won't want to miss Kiralee again this week. Also, I'll take a look at what's happening in Libya, where six people are on death row for the crime of being Christians. How does this happen in this day and age? And I've got, a, I've got something very special coming right at the end of the show, a chat with ADHTV host of the nightly Fred Paul show, Fred Paul himself. Fred's a journalist and an author and a surfer, not necessarily in that order of importance. He's a fascinating guy, so please stick around. But first, Last Tuesday night, Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers delivered his first budget. It is a budget of politician-created contradictions. Contradictions and money are a bad mix, especially for a nation-state. Politicians who don't understand the reality of female biology are also unlikely to understand economic reality, and so it is. The cost of living crisis this budget purports to alleviate with $14 billion in handouts to disadvantaged people has bipartisan authors. In fact, the entire political quad which runs Australia, Labor, Greens, Liberals and the Teals, are all in on the, on the energy price hiking net zero frolic. Reducing emissions may be a noble aim, but our politicians are trying to do it without the technology to replace cheap and reliable baseload power that we once enjoyed. So in the budget, they will borrow yet more money for yet more windmills and solar panels while we eschew coal, gas, and of course, continue to ban nuclear. Instead of reducing our projected net debt of $702 billion by 2627, another $2 billion of your money, this is money we don't have, is to be gambled on green hydrogen, another unproven technology. There's never been a cost-benefit analysis done of the energy transition, but there's certainly been a high cost and no benefits, particularly to people in the suburbs. The political quad has caused the electricity price hike, and the irony is that Labor this week handed $14 billion of borrowed money back to people who are struggling to pay their electricity bills. In seeking to be seen to be helping, this cash splash is likely to further drive wealth-sapping inflation. It's pouring petrol on the dumpster fire which the Quad collectively lit. The phrase false economy comes to mind. But who doesn't like a cash handout, especially if you're doing it tough? I confess to buying a flat screen TV with the money Kevin Rudd gave me during the GFC back in 2007. It would have been better if politicians had not created the problem that we have in Australia right now in the first place. The budget predicts that inflation now running above 6% will be halved to 3.25% next year. But this is off the back of flogging mortgage holders with interest rate hikes when a key driver of inflation is out of control government spending and debt, factors that are not addressed in this week's budget. Instead of leaving the people struggling to pay off their home loans to do all the heavy lifting in reducing inflation at the behest of the Reserve Bank, the government should have pulled the, levels, the levers available to it and reduced its spending and its debt. But it didn't. Labor boasts of a $4 billion surplus, the first by any government in 15 years. But herein lies another contradiction. It's not brilliant economic management and government spending restraint, but a mining boom and record income tax receipts that has delivered the rivers of cash to the government coffers. While the political quad, Senator Matt Canavan from Queensland aside, demonises coal and gas, it is fossil fuels super profits that have delivered the surplus, not fiscal discipline by Labor. In fact, government spending has increased. How does Labor expect to keep funding the NDIS, which is now bigger than Medicare and growing at $5 billion a year? And how does it expect to pay down our $1 trillion gross debt if Labor keeps making a virtue of refusing coal and gas development projects? Killing the golden goose will come back to bite us. The debt is going up at a rate of $700 per second and we'll be paying $27 billion in interest payments per year 
within four years. Net debt will be 702 billion by 2627, as I said earlier. It's commendable to be offering cost of living relief to people who are struggling, but if governments of both persuasions had not driven inflation through flawed energy policy and out of control government spending, particularly during the overreaction to COVID, there wouldn't have been the need to compound the problem by borrowing more money to help the people the government hurt in the first place. Sadly, that's how politics works, particularly when ideologies like climate catastrophism drive public policy. Now, it's my contention that Australia's cost of living crisis is almost entirely caused by poor decisions made by our politicians. One of the biggest pain points is for households soaring electricity costs. We're all feeling the pinch. We keep hearing that renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy, but power bills continue to go up and show no sign of falling. My next guest has written a brilliant article for the Institute for Public Affairs, uh, the IPA Review Journal, entitled Coal Closure Dark Age, Why Recklessly Closing More Coal-Fired Power Stations Threatens to Condemn Australians to a New dark age. Kevin Yu is a research fellow at the IPA in Melbourne. His background is in the field of political economy, industrial relations and organisational studies. He joins me now. Welcome, Kevin, to ADH-TV. Thank you for having me. Kevin, before we get into your article uh, and your alarming warnings about the potential for blackouts following the closure of more coal-fired power stations, I noticed that you have published another article this week about the correlation between government spending and inflation. And given that it's budget week and the government claims it is playing its part to bring down inflation, uh, and that's the inflation that's sapping all of our household we uh, wealth, um, is, it, is it true that what Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese are doing is deflationary, as Albanese contended uh, just this week. Well, the honest answer is no, no, it's it's not deflationary, and and the budget is not going to address inflation, uh, for the simple reason that pouring more and more money into the economy without increasing the productive capacity of the economy, uh, that that is not a way to address inflation. Government spending is set to increase, uh, according to this budget, by 20% over the forward estimates to 2027, uh, which is an increase of approximately 4-5% uh, on an annual basis. And that's on top of an already massive spending hike uh, over the last few years. And so the notion that pouring even more money into the economy, increasing cash in circulation, is going to address inflation uh, is pure fantasy. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. Kevin, how much, um, and, and this will be the last question on this before we get to coal and, and the power situation, but uh, how much government spending, so, so for each dollar of government spending, what does that relate to or translate to in terms of uh, inflationary pressure? So our research has found that for every, for every one percentage increase in government spending, um, it would correlate with a approximately 0.35 percentage point uh, uh, price level increase or a pressure in price level uh, which will which will flow onto inflationary pressures which will flow onto changes to the consumer price index and so an an additional 5% increase every um, uh, every year will result in approximately uh, a 0.67% um, uh, 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 increase in uh, in inflationary pressures yeah, it certainly doesn't seem fair because the government is uh, expecting mortgage holders to, to uh, help drive down demand bar through their high interest rates, and yet it uh, could help reduce inflation by reducing its spending. But uh, that's uh, another story. Um, now, now, to your article about coal closures, uh, Kevin, uh, the giant Liddell power station in the Hunter Valley has just been closed as part of the former Liberal Energy Minister Matt Keane's plan to go renewables. Both the new Labor government of Chris Minns and the federal Albanese government say everything is fine, nothing to worry about in terms of blackouts and high prices. Why are you arguing that they are wrong? Well, simply because you just can't replace coal-fired power facilities uh, with wind and solar and assume that everything's going to be everything's going to be fine. This notion that there's nothing to see here, the transition's going to be seamless, everything's going to be fine, is um, is a folly, right? Because coal-fired power plants 
provide stable and affordable baseload electricity 24-7 in, in a stable and predictable manner that, that doesn't have um, a, a negative impact on the, it doesn't wreck the grid because it's, it's stable, it's, it's predictable. Um, wind and solar work very, very differently. Um, in the sense that they're de intermittent and they're dependent entirely on weather conditions. Um, they're reliant on the whims of Mother Nature uh, and the volatility in the, amount of, in the amount of electricity supply that they provide um, uh, threatens the structural integrity of the grid. And so, and so the electricity grid not only has to cope with, with fluctuations in demand, it would also, uh, with increasing increasing reliance on wind and solar, the electricity grid will also need to cope with the fluctuations in supply, which is, which is, the, sort of, which is the sort of challenge that, that the electricity grid didn't have to cope with quite as much with, uh, with uh, uh, the majority of our electricity supply being provided by, by baseload power stations like coal-fired power generators. Yeah, no, it stands to reason, Kevin. Um, and, uh, you know, we've all seen the Australian energy market operator warnings, um, although it seems like um, they are sending mixed messages, uh, certain messages before the election and certain messages after. Uh, but nevertheless, they have been warning about the risk of blackouts, although, as I said, they've, they've walked some of that back. Um, what, what do you see uh, as the potential for blackouts? Is that a real fear or is that just scaremongering? It is an absolutely real fear. It, it's, not, it's not scaremongering because uh, AEMO themselves have, have pointed out uh, when uh, just after the, the uh, announcement of Liddell's closure was made that there's a risk of five hours worth of blackouts affecting 200,000 homes in New South Wales every three years over the summer months. And so why, why the emphasis on the summer months? That's, of course, because uh, demand will be at its peak during the summer months because of uh, air conditioning usage and uh, among other things. Um, and this is, this is something that, that uh, wind and solar power generators simply can't, uh, can't cope with, simply can't, uh, can't address because of, the very, uh, uh, because of the very nature of the way that they generate uh, electricity. And so... And the threat is still there. The fact that um, the fact that uh, 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 that uh, Liddell has been taken off, and we haven't seen any blackout quite as yet, uh, is not a sign that we're off the hook. The reason is because electricity use, electricity demand hasn't peaked yet. We are we are going to see a, a, a higher level of electricity demand as we enter as we enter the Australian the Australian summer, and. The way in which the way in which um, uh, risks have been mitigated somewhat in um, in terms of decommissioning Liddell has largely relied on um, other fossil fuel generated electricity electricity um, uh, coming on the grid, uh, for example, base waters upgrade, or um, or being prepared to come on the grid. So we're talking about uh, a new gas plant at Karikari, uh, potentially uh, Talawara B, um, as well as a set of upgraded interconnectors from Queensland and Victoria and, and, uh, and other states, which would be able to sort of hopefully in some way uh, address any shortfalls arising from um, uh, coal-fired power stations being taken off the grid in New South Wales, which basically means that New South Wales will be more reliant on uh, coal-fired power generators like uh, Kogan, like Halide, like uh, Tarong in Queensland, and the likes of Loyang and, um, and Yelorn in, in Victoria. And so um, the, the, the effect is that there will be a greater level of dependence on existing coal-fired and, uh, and new gas-fired uh, power generators. Uh, and this is something that policymakers recognize, uh, which, is, which is the reason why, why they, they've been scrambling to get uh, a firm capacity um, uh, brought, into, uh, brought into the grid. Because they, in recognition of the fact that, that 
wind and solar simply can't cut it. So, so Kevin, what you're saying, and you know, you mentioned the word hope. Policymakers are hoping all this extra power from Queensland and uh, Victoria uh, coming across the border to make up for the de deficit uh, after the closure of Liddell. Um, what, what is is uh, drawing from that power from interstate? Uh, going to do to the wholesale uh, price of power, uh, which of course translates through to people's electricity bills? Well, it's naturally going to drive up prices in uh, in those states. And so uh, what the, the states that this is going to affect are uh, the states that are connected to, to the national electricity market. So the national electricity market is essentially just the, is the energy grid that serves the eastern seaboard states plus South Australia. So that's Queensland, Victoria, New South Wales, um, uh, Tasmania and um, and South Australia, and the, the the electricity markets in these states are connected together, uh, which means that which means that any electricity shortfall in New South Wales can be made up for by uh, supplies in Queensland and Victoria, and uh, instinctively you can uh, you can um, uh, you can imagine uh, a reduction in supply of electricity in in Queensland, for example, as a result of a greater degree of export into New South Wales would mean that, that uh, assuming that demand stays stable, would mean that price will need to adjust in order, to, in order for uh, electricity, electricity price to be at equilibrium. That would increase price in, in Queensland. And so the shortfall in New South Wales will not affect just the state of New South Wales, but also other states connected, connected to it, including Victoria and South Australia and Tasmania. It's unbelievable. We're sharing the pain right up and down the eastern seaboard and into South Australia Absolutely. for this decision. It's crazy. Kevin, your, your article is it's very, very concerning. You say that we need to act now to avoid disaster. What, what needs to happen immediately in the short and the long term to avoid um, not just, you know, prices continuing to skyrocket, but um, to avoid the grid from, uh, you know, collapsing or, or getting into a situation where we no longer have reliable electricity? Well, what needs to happen in the short run is that we need to stop this madness. After Liddell's closure, that's it. We need to stop closing down coal-fired power station in, the, in a mad dash um, uh, for net zero by 2050. We need to, we need to take stock of, of where we are now, what supplies we've got available to us, and what we want the future of our energy grid to look like in order to meet the demands of the future. We need to, we need to actually have a real think about it. The fact that, um, that the Treasurer has announced, um, alongside with the budget, um, uh, and the creation of a net net zero authority to plan out the transition to net zero two years after net zero has been uh, has been committed to is a sign that 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 politicians are admitting that they have got no idea what they're doing yet um, while while we shooting in the dark um, coal fired power stations continue to close we're continuing to lose reliable supplies of power and so we need to to stop this madness repeal uh, the net zero act and actually have a thorough think about what we want our electricity grid to look like in the future to address the demands uh, of, of the future uh, and take into consideration what will be the, um, the role that nuclear energy will play in, uh, in the future. Nuclear energy right now is, is uh, nuclear energy generation right now is still banned by section 140A of the EPBC Act for reasons that are beyond me. Um, uh, what will be the role of high-efficiency, low-emissions coal in the future? How are we going to address the uh, uh, waste associated with continuous replacement of, uh, of solar panels? Um, um, Kevin, uh, Kevin, lots uh, of issues there, which will, yeah, the, lots of issues there, which our politicians absolutely. haven't even begun to think of. As you said, they're shooting in the no. dark, and they could well be leaving us in the dark. Uh, Kevin, just finally, um, we started off this interview talking about uh, inflation and the government's role with its yep. expenditure. Um, what role uh, does net zero policies uh, have on, on inflation? This is the big thing, which is uh, eating a hole in all of our pockets, uh, and yet it, it's another government-caused problem, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, the most visible, the most visible impact is an increase in energy prices. So you remember, Lyle, when when the Albanese, when the Albanese uh, government or when the Labour Party at the time, uh, before uh, the election, promised a $275 reduction 
in, in power prices. Um, and what eventuated is power prices escalating and spiraling out of control. Uh, but secondly, um, what inflation is essentially is too much money chasing the same amount of goods and services or too few goods and services. And so on the one hand, we've seen so much um, uh, money being poured into, into this dash for uh, a transition to renewables, this dash for net zero, including the $20 billion worth of, of cash injection into, into green, uh, green hydrogen uh, announced in the budget. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a lot of money, a lot of cash being poured into this transition, into this net zero pipe dream. But on the other side, what are we actually getting out of it, right? Are we going to produce more food as a result of a greater degree of reliance on wind and solar? Well, no. Are we going to make work more efficient as a result of a greater degree of reliance on wind and solar? Well, no. Are we going to produce more steel and more iron as a result of a greater reliance on wind and solar? Well, no. So we've, we've got an equation whereby Productivity doesn't change, and the best that they can hope for is for the electricity grid to remain as stable and affordable as it was before this mad dash. But a lot of cash has already been poured into the economy in order for the grid to transition. And so this is a classic textbook case of, uh, of uh, uh, too much money chasing the same amount of goods or fewer goods and services. Well, Kevin, it sounds like um, a perfect storm, uh, all created by really poorly thought out government policy, uh, but it's hurting the people in the suburbs. Um, Kevin, uh, thank you so much for coming on today to explain that, and I'd commend people to go to the IPA website and, and read your material. Thanks so much, Kevin. It's been a pleasure, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You can convert kids surgically. So tell me how we can have, be having this conversation even. It's oh, yeah. just beyond comprehension. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think people have very different views. Uh, people, a lot of people just want to tolerate it and say this is fine. Tolerate it's... what? Tolerate what? Castration and double mastectomies for 13-year-olds? Well, yeah, no, seriously, oh, yeah. man. Yeah. That's not tolerance. That's, that's crossed the line. That is not tolerance. That, that, is, in, in that is an inexcusable silence on the part of the majority, the vast majority, who knows this to be wrong in the deepest possible sense. Most of the bloody Nazi propaganda that led to the extermination policies at the beginning of World War II were predicated initially on compassion and tolerance. So this whole, we're being compassionate and tolerant. It's like, no, you're not. Tolerate what? Don't you just love the clarity of Jordan Peterson there? I think I'll make that the opening for, for this segment uh, from, from now on. Uh, looking at the LGBTIQA plus political movements indoctrination of children into harmful gender fluid ideology. What better way to introduce this segment? This is serious stuff, folks, and we need to wake up, as Jordan Peterson said. One of the key people in this nation sounding the alarm is my regular guest, girls, women, and children's advocate, Kiralee Smith from Binary. Kiralee, before we get into things today, congratulations on being named Family Voice Australia's Mother of the Year. Thank you, Lyle. It's really wonderful and overwhelming, and what a privilege. Well, I, I think it's really well-deserved, Kiralee. I've had the privilege of meeting your family uh, earlier this year. Very impressive, and obviously you're an amazing mother and uh, obviously your husband uh, to produce such a wonderful um, group of uh, well-adjusted young people. Who, and uh, and uh, the fact that you're doing what you're doing in our nation, providing the righteous indignation of a mother to this debate, I think is so necessary, so, so good on you. Now, Kiralee, rather than embarrass you further, <laughs> let's get into things. Um, you've rightly talked, or you and I have both right, rightly talked a lot about drag queen story time, which is part of the global LGBTIQA plus political movement strategy to induct our children into gender fluid ideology and queer theory and sexualized concepts. They're quite upfront about that. Uh, now, over several years, it's been getting foothold here in Australia, but mainstream Australians are beginning to push back. Most recently, just a couple of weeks ago, at Monash City Council's library in Melbourne. Now, if you believe the mainstream media, the only people opposed to drag queen story time are neo-Nazis. Take a look. 
The city of Monash has been forced to cancel a children's drag-themed storytime event after staff were bombarded with death threats from neo-Nazis and protesters. Police were forced to intervene after white supremacist Thomas Sewell vowed to crash the library reading. Lana Murphy explains. With narrow views but loud voices. Leave the children alone! A small but raucous crowd made their feelings clear. Monash Council is committed to child safety and all events and programs are developed. And today they won. It's really shattering. A drag queen hosted story time at Oakley Library cancelled after organisers, hosts and staff were told they'd be killed. Every so Kiralee, what's going on there? Well, look, I mean, any threats are unacceptable and ought to be condemned 100%. But I think you will find that the majority of people at that meeting and the majority of mums and dads in this country have never made any threats, don't intend on making any threats, but they're very, very serious about child protection and safeguarding when it comes to the sort of materials that are being presented to their children and the fact that adult males who are appropriating stereotypes of women, very hypersexualized caricatures, making a mockery of women, are the ones reading these books to our children. We have every right to be upset and we have every right to object to taxpayer and ratepayer funds being used uh, to support these adult male entertainers who belong in private bars, not in front of an audience of small children. Kiralee, how did this, this neo-Nazi thing, this seems to be the go-to now for uh, anyone trying to discredit ordinary mums and dads and, and and that's what we saw in that crowd in the footage there there were no neo-nazis there but uh, the, the best i could find was some neo-nazi posted something on a facebook page and therefore that leads the news uh, event about the protest it, it had nothing to do with that protest uh, this is a defamation of ordinary mainstream australians isn't it yeah, the, the media just love the narrative and want to push, um, you know, this extremist view every time and paint ordinary mums and dads who are very concerned about this issue as, as some far-right extremists. And we're not. Um, if neo-Nazis co-opt, uh, you know, this, or hijack, in other words, um, this cause, um, there's not much that can be done about it. But you certainly don't need to shine a spotlight on them. They are not the ones leading this. They are not the ones who are concerned. We are concerned and we have every right to be concerned. Yeah. Now, th this is where the framing of this protest, you know, is it's so important that we break it down because, you know, Victorian Premier, Labor Premier Dan Andrews seized on the opportunity to further denounce mainstream concern about the sexualisation of children. And uh, this is what he had to say in Parliament. Let's take a look at this and then we want to talk about it after we've watched it with not an exercise of free speech, but an exercise in hate speech, violence, bigotry, racism, sexism, uh, 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 homophobia, transphobia, the list goes on. Now, now Kiralee, you know, the, the lady in that Channel 9 news clip who said, leave our kids alone, okay, she was a bit hot under the collar. You can understand the emotion, um, and that may not have been the best way to express it, but she's not a bigot uh, or a hater for expressing that point of view, is she? Absolutely not. And Dan Andrews lives in a bubble where he doesn't even let, you know, people oppose him. He, he protects himself and keeps himself, um, uh, you know, excluded from the general population. And the reality is um, social media and all the comments um, after his comments uh, were opposed to him and very um, upset that he would use such extremist language to paint genuine concerns from mums and dads about the sexualization of their children. There is never, never an, uh, an acceptable excuse why our children should be sexualized, especially by adult males uh, who are hypersexualized. Yeah, no, it's a real worry. Again, this is all part of trying to strike fear into the hearts of ordinary people uh, not to speak up on these things because you'll get labelled an evil person by someone like Dan Andrews using the bully pulpit of, of Parliament. Uh, Kiralee, I noticed on your uh, blog this week, uh, the Greens have got a new code of conduct to define transphobia uh, as anything that, and I'll put the quote up on the screen, anything that, quote, harms or seriously risks harming trans people as a group by virtue of being trans and prescribes as examples vilifying trans people, discriminating against trans people, attempting to curtail the rights of trans people, intentionally misgendering trans people individually or as a group, denying that non-binary genders exist, 
promoting the unnecessary prioritization of sex characteristics above gender, advocating for conversion practices, advocating for unnecessary restrictions on transition care, and asking leading questions that cover for doing one of the above. Now, Kiralee, um, normally you know you wouldn't take the Greens that seriously, but what we've seen over the last couple of decades is so much of their wacky stuff has actually found its way into law. Why should we be concerned about such a code of conduct that's now being put forward by the Greens? Because they're falsely labelling truth speech as hate speech and vilification, and it is utterly ridiculous and insane. And the average Australian almost laughs in disbelief that uh, that some of these things are already being practised, um, you know, because of anti-discrimination legislation in this country. But you know, there's no such thing as misgendering. There's correctly sexing a person. Um, you know, we all have that innate ability to look at someone and know immediately whether they're male or female. And to call them such is not a hate crime, is not vilification. It's simply speaking the truth. And in many cases, it's self-protection, particularly for women in vulnerable spaces where there's males. And we have that ability um, right from the earliest, you know, ages of childhood to be able to correctly sex people. And uh, now these sort of um, attitudes that the Greens have been weaponised in law to intimidate, harass and threaten and silence people and it's unacceptable and uh, quite frankly Australians need to wake up and oppose these extremist, ridiculous views uh, before more, more people are dragged before the courts. Yeah, you know, if a code of conduct like that, and as you say, some of what's in that code of conduct already is covered by uh, anti-discrimination laws, but this code does take it further, it, it would completely outlaw uh, the conversation you and I are having today. Yeah, correct, Lyle. And, um, well, it's not going to stop me and I'm pretty sure it's not going to stop you. Um, but this is how serious it is. They are weaponising uh, these ridiculous, you know, they're almost like a religious belief that they have. It's not based on fact. It's not based on evidence. It's not based on truth or reality. Uh, yet they are so determined uh, to to make these anti-women in particular views uh, mainstream and uh, part of legislation and we must oppose it at every turn. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now Kiralee, just before we go, um, it has been in the public arena that uh, there's been a, an apprehended violence order against you. That, that's been reported again recently. What, what can you tell us? I know that you're subject to some areas where you need to be cautious because of legal reasons, but uh, what, can, what can you tell our audience about where things are at in terms of uh, what's happening to you? Yeah, these are before the court. There's two applications for apprehended violence orders and there's also uh, two uh, vilification complaints uh, against me um, because I've identified male players in um, a particular sporting code in this country um, and they're playing in the women's team. So uh, I will vigorously and am vigorously defending myself against these uh, claims. I have a great legal team and a lot of support and uh, I will share more as I'm able to do so. No, good on you, Kiralee. Um, and, and I noticed in one of the newspaper reports in the Telegraph this week that the leading goal scorer in uh, one of the female soccer leagues in, in uh, New South Wales uh, is someone who, who is a biological male identifying as a female and that um, there's been moves by the federal government to try and censor uh, the reporting of that. Yes, that's correct. The e-safety commissioner who closed or actually had my Facebook page deleted uh, sent letters to um, a couple of magazines overseas, uh, journalistic reporters, uh, threatening them and telling them that they had broken Australian law. They didn't tell them what laws that they had broken and were demanding that they either heavily censor or remove their articles um, about things that are in the public domain here in Australia and are of great public concern. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh, thankfully, let me just say, yeah. they refused to take down or censor their articles, which is great news. Well done. Yeah, that's right. One of those. And again, this is this is all on the public record. Uh, Redux in uh, Canada, an alternative media platform, uh, they said um, they'll have to you know, throw a boomerang at them or something like that. It was a little bit tongue in cheek, but they said they're not going <laughs> to stop reporting on uh, biological males uh, playing in women's sports and good on them, despite our own government trying to uh, reach 
their censorious hand uh, across the Pacific Ocean. It's quite extraordinary um, that uh, this is even happening. I would never have thought Australia would come to this where you couldn't have a discussion about something as controversial as this, but this is where we are. Exactly. It's very disturbing. It's very distressing. But, uh, you know, thankfully, not just myself, but there's some other great women and men in this country who uh, will not be silenced and will not be shut down when we're speaking very plainly, very seriously, very calmly about an issue that affects us all. Absolutely. Well, well Kiralee, um, I know I speak on behalf of our audience. We wish you all the best in the legal fights. Uh, we wish that uh, this should never, we know that this should never have happened to any Australian, let alone someone like yourself. And uh, congratulations again for your award and uh, for being with us again here on ADH TV. Thanks for having me, Lyle. And now to some shocking news from North Africa. The Albanese government must urge the Libyan government not to execute six Christians on death row. The Guardian newspaper reports the following. Six Libyans are facing the death penalty for converting to Christianity and proselytising under laws increasingly being used to silence civil society and human rights organisation, say activists. The women and men, uh, some from Libya's minority ethnic groups, including the Amayas, uh, the Berbers, uh, in the west of the country were separately detained in March by the security forces. Now, freedom of religion is a basic human right recognised under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR, to which Libya is a signatory. The Albanese government must make urgent representations to the Libyan government via Libya's embassy in Canberra. The execution of people for their religious beliefs is something Australia, as part of the community of nations, should never turn a blind eye to. The Guardian reports that Libya's internal security, security agency said in a statement that the arrests were to stop an organised gang action aiming to solicit and to make people leave Islam, end quote. Now, people in all countries should be free to leave or join the religion of their choice. If religion is not voluntary, it is a cult. It seems like the Libyan government is intent on turning Islam into a death cult. Well, joining me now is Fred Paul, host of The Fred Paul Show, right here on ADH TV, weeknights at 7 p.m. and on demand. Fred, thanks very much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me, Lyle. Good to be here. Fred, uh, tell our audience uh, a little bit about yourself. You're a journalist, an author, a surfer, as I understand it, not necessarily in that order. Well, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure what order I'd put them in myself. Um, I mean, I started life as a surfer and, and you do actually learn a lot about life from surfing. I mean, the, the, the best thing you learn is to accept the vicissitudes of life because as a surfer, if the waves are flat, then you just get on with, uh, with normal life. But if, uh, if the waves are pumping, then you drop everything uh, and, uh, and, and hit out, get out there. But, um, you know, you kind of learn to accept the, the, the ups and downs of life. And it does make you more optimistic, I think. I think surfers are generally pretty optimistic, happy people because, you know, they know that there's always uh, good waves around the corner if they wait long enough. Um, but as for journalism, I, I, you know, I... I got into journalism in my mid-twenties and I spent most of my life actually at The Australian. And to be honest, Lyle, I actually felt a little bit out of place there because it's a, you know, it's a serious broadsheet newspaper and I'm just a, a knockabout guy. I was actually kicked out of high school when I was, kid, when I was a kid. So, you know, I, um, I, I, I love The Australian. It's one of the great, or, or used to be one of the great newspapers of the world. I, I'm not sure it's in uh, such good uh, condition these days. It's still a great newspaper, don't get me wrong. but. Journalism has definitely changed and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk about that yeah. um, later, but uh, yeah. Yeah, well, well, Fred, obviously your journalism um, honed your writing skills and uh, I had the great pleasure last year of reading your amazing book, uh, Die Laughing, the biography of the late and great uh, cartoonist at the Australian, Bill Leake. It's, it's a cracking read. Uh, the introduction is by another iconic Australian uh, who recently passed away, Barry Humphreys. Um, tell us uh, why these two men were such important figures and remain inspirational for those of us who are fighting the culture wars today? Well, the first thing I realised when I was writing Bill's biography, and, and just as a matter of context, Bill and I were very good friends for 23 years. The first thing I realised was just how emblematic his biography was of Australian post-war culture. So Bill was born in 1956. He grew up 
during the Menzies era. And so his formative years, his kind of teenage years and so on, were post-Menzies and a kind of a reaction to, you know, Australian conservatism and, and you know, the, the, the sort of uh, conformity of the suburbs of that era. And he became very hedonistic, I've got to say, uh, and very liberal, small l liberal, um, and a lefty. So, you know, his, his initial uh, passions were music and art. In his late teens, he decided that he would pursue art instead of music, instead, uh, although he did remain a, a, an accomplished or a very skilled uh, pianist um, throughout his life. He just loved jazz. But then he, he travelled to Europe, um, you know, saw all the great masters up close, became a, 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 settled down in Germany for a while, became an artist, actually held a couple of exhibitions in Germany as well. And when he came back here, um, couldn't cut it as an artist, so he quickly morphed into a cartoonist. He was an extremely funny bloke and an, and an incredible larrikin, the definitive larrikin. So when he came back in the 80s, you know, it, Sydney especially was was really thriving. There's a lot of money around and, and Australian larrikin humour was kind of on the up. And uh, Bill very much epitomised that. And he was at Fairfax at the time. And then in the early 90s, he switched over to News Corp. And he, in his transition to News Corp, when he became the uh, a cartoonist at The Australian, he started sort of broadening his, broadening his thinking. Uh, he was still a bit of a lefty, but he slowly started to drift towards a more classical liberalism, having been such a free thinker his, himself all his life. In the early 2000s, he looked around and realised that the most censorious people were the people on the left and the people defending freedom were people like yourself, Lyle, on the right. You know, he, and, you know, having spent some of the 90s um, lambasting the Liberal Party, people like Philip Ruddick and John Howard, he got in a lot of trouble with John Howard at one stage. John Howard could have got him sacked if he wanted, and, and uh, it's credit to John or Mr Howard that he didn't do that. And later in life, Bill became friends with Mr Howard and, um, and became somewhat of a conservative. And so Bill and I actually made the same transition at that time. And what I'm trying to say here is all those, all those eras that he lived through, he, was, he kind of epitomised those eras. They were very emblematic of Australia itself. And of course, as everyone knows, in the last few years of his life, he was being hounded by the apparatchiks and the authoritarians and t t tyrants of the, um, of the Australian Human Rights Commission and the Press Council and various other institutions, not, to, not least of which was the ABC. So it, it's a great story, great Australian story. Um, as for Barry, sorry, getting back to your original question, as for Barry, I mean, Barry is, uh, you know, again, he's, he's very much Australia's, um, the funniest Australian who ever lived. Uh, the, the thing I love about Barry is that his, his most um, sort of vicious, satirical characters always retain something that you could like about them, you know, whether it was uh, Edna's, Edna's inability to fully escape the suburbs or Sir Les's just sort of uh, irreverence towards anything um, uh, that, that, that was, uh, you know, authoritarian or whatever. Um, you know, the, despite them being such uh, tasteless characters, we could still, as Australians especially, we could still love them, which is what made Barry so genius. Yeah, they're both absolute genius, um, uh, Fred. And uh, for someone like myself who had a very different uh, upbringing, uh, I certainly wasn't amongst the bohemian class at uh, university, then to find yourself later in life uh, allied with uh, guys uh, like Bill Leake in terms of um, policy and uh, concern about our censorious culture is, is quite extraordinary. I certainly commend to uh, viewers and uh, listeners uh, your book. It's an amazing, amazing read. Um, and, th and thanks for sharing all that, Fred. Um, Fred, um, on the Fred Paul show uh, recently, you um, covered uh, the artificial intelligence uh, technology issue. Um, it left me really, really worried. This is the whole you know, AI chat GPT phenomenon that we're all starting to get into. Um, left me worried. Why do we need to be cautious about this new technology? Well, there's one particular reason why we need to be cautious about it, and that is that it can be used to uh, cause us harm. 
So uh, criminals, for example, uh, are already using artificial intelligence to fool people into parting with their money. I won't bore you with the details of how it happens, but you know, you can, you can create very convincing representations, even visually, of people um, you know, asking for your money and people get conned out of their money very easily that way. But artificial in intelligence, because it is a, a, an artificial thinking process, could quite conceivably resolve of its own volition to shut down our systems or steal money from our, our bank accounts or whatever without any human intervention at all, which is extremely frightening. Now, I had a good chat with uh, Deacon Calvin Robinson, uh, the really good conservative uh, commentator from Britain about this. And the, the, the reassuring part of this, Lyle, is that artificial intelligence is indeed a threat to the systems that we rely on in the West. But the one thing it can't do, one thing it can't properly emulate is it can't actually be human. It will never have a soul and it will never actually have a conscience, no matter how well it is programmed to, uh, to think in that direction, if I can put it that way. Yeah, yeah now that's so, certainly reassuring, Fred. And so long as, um, uh, a human could pull the plug out, I suppose, at some stage, if it does get out of control, that might be the thing that saves us. Um. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Fred, you've, you've pulled off some big interviews. You mentioned uh, Calvin Robinson from the UK, who's amazing. Um, but another uh, one that you had recently was uh, with Moira Deeming, who's in the news uh, this week for the wrong reason, not because she's done the wrong thing, but because uh, the Liberal Party is demonising her. Uh, another network boasted an exclusive interview with her the other week, but uh, I think the very next day or within two days, uh, she appeared on the Fred Paul show being brilliantly interviewed by yourself. Um, what uh, most struck you about Moira uh, when you spoke with her? Her honesty. She is an extremely honest and caring person. I mean, she was quite candid with me about things that happened to her in her childhood. Um, I mean, it's quite well known that she was the victim of a sexual assault when she was young. But what most people didn't know also was that in her mid-teens, her best friend became un unintentionally pregnant and she helped this young girl get an abortion and she's regretted it ever since. And she knew there were people telling her, her own mother told her at the time, that the long-term consequences of this would be regrettable. And uh, so it, is, it has happened, um, so, so it has been. And Moira was extremely open about this and it, was, it reflects incredibly well on her. As you said, Moira has done nothing wrong. I mean, she's been vilified by her own party, essentially for sticking up for the rights of women. And what she said in that interview was that she had recently, this was two, maybe three weeks ago, she said um, she had recently had, as an MP, a Liberal MP in the Victorian Parliament, she had recently had two invitations to um, official functions cancelled because of these allegations of, against her being a, an associate of Nazis, which everyone knows only a cursory uh, look at the evidence proves that Moira is anything but a Nazi, yet she is widely perceived as being one. It's an awful, awful allegation to have over your head and one that, that is, that, that's so tangible that people are cancelling invitations for you. So yeah, Moira, as you said, did nothing wrong, is uh, copying the consequences of vilification by her own party, the party of Robert Menzies, that goes under the name of Liberal, which, is, it, which it is anything but, and um, she is standing up for the truth. I, you know, I had a little text exchange with her the other day and I'm sure she wouldn't, uh, wouldn't mind me divulging. I told her, people who stand up for the truth, they always win in the end, Lyle. The truth always vindicates. Yeah, good on you, Fred. Um, look, uh, not, uh, not to take anything away from the other exclusive interview that week, but what you uh, brought out through your interview um, certainly was, um, was 
substance that hadn't uh, come out to light and certainly hasn't been reported since. So uh, fantastic uh, work there on the Fred Paul Show. Just to finish, uh, Fred, um, go back to where we started at the at the beginning of this chat. Uh, you, you've come from the mainstream media, having worked at the Australian and, and also Sky News. Uh, why were you attracted to uh, a new media platform like Australian Digital Holdings? Well, it's to work with people like you, Lyle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we are, we are a very eclectic bunch here at ADH, but we have one thing in common and we uh, don't compromise on the truth. And I'm afraid to say, having spent 30 years in the mainstream media, that compromising the truth is is an everyday occurrence in the uh, mainstream media, as Tucker Carlson put it so well when he announced his new show coming up on Twitter um, just a couple of days ago. It's quite disturbing. You know, people died for our freedoms, Lyle, as you know. Um, the, the freedom of speech is our most, pre our most precious, the, the most precious thing we have inherited, and we have to protect it because, as I said, People died uh, fighting to defend it. And uh, if the mainstream media can't stick up for free speech or be a beacon for free speech, then organisations like ADH will. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. Fantastic, Fred. So well said. As you SMS to Moira, the truth will win out. And uh, you and I know the truth will win out through platforms like this. Thank you so much for giving your time today, Fred. It's been wonderful to chat to you. Pleasure, Lyle, anytime. Well, that's it from me for another week. I'll be back next Friday at 12 noon, or you can watch the show anytime on demand at the ADH TV website or on the ADH TV app. Don't forget to check out the other amazing shows right here on ADH TV. There's Fred Paul, as we've just seen, the great Alan Jones, Damien Curry, Daisy Cousin, my friend Dave Pellow, another great Australian, David Flint with Save the Nation, Alexandra Marshall presents Spectator TV, and there's the incredible Mark Stein all right here, streaming and on demand. You can follow me on Twitter at Lyle Shelton and on Facebook. Plus there's the daily political commentary at the Family First blog. That's familyfirstparty.org.au. Thanks again for your company. Until next week, keep speaking up.